0: Hi, and welcome to Chapter 32 of the Story of London. It's time for a confession. For the last 23 chapters of this podcast, we've been covering the centuries-long relationship between the Vikings and the town of London in its various incarnations throughout the Anglo-Saxon era. Since the first recorded Viking impact upon London all the way back in the 790s until now and in our story, we are in the year 1013, there had been 12 violent clashes between the residents of London and those Scandinavian raiders, either sailing from the fjords of places like Norway or originating closer to home, in the north diaspora of the Irish Sea, or even from just across the Channel. A dozen battles and attacks and confrontations. It's easy to lose track of them all, But here, in the story of London, I don't. I tend not to forget details as we move forward. Uh, I've got this weird compulsive urge to keep track of these things. And more than that, I keep track of these things so that one day I could present the whole thing like a sports broadcast. And so, let's get up to speed with the game, shall we? London versus the Vikings. The match so far. Music, please. So we're starting in the year 842, and there is a Viking raid on London apparently. But while the authenticity of this claim is questioned, we're gonna say it did happen, but that it was not a devastating attack. As we covered in chapter nine, let's assume it was a successful raid, but with no lingering damage. Vikings one, London nil. But nine years later in 851, there is a serious raid. 350 Viking ships worth of raiders, fall upon London and trash the place. Long-term side effects include the Royal Mint there being closed for a few years due to the sheer amount of bullion seemingly stolen. Vikings 2, London nil. We take a 20-year break and pick back up over the winter of 871 and 872. Here we see the remnants of the original great heathen army under the brilliant Viking leader Halfton Whiteshirt Occupy London. Luckily, it's part of a peace deal Alfred the Great made with him. Alfred Gate half-done a huge payoff, and the Vikings agreed to spend the winter in London without wrecking the joint, as we described in Chapter 11. But technically, we are counting this as a Viking win, so it's Vikings 3, London 0. The Vikings are dominating the early part of the game, Gary. But 21 years later, we see a flurry of events between the years 893 and 895, which we covered in chapters 15 and 16. It begins with a bunch of Vikings fleeing from a big old battle somewhere to the south, but they end up being besieged on Thorny Island. And the forces of London supplement the forces of the Aetherling Edward to get these Vikings to agree to a ceasefire and retreat. We're counting that as a London victory, so it's Vikings 3, London 1. And later that year, the residents of London are led by Ethelred, Ylderman of Mercia, as he launched a sudden attack upon the base of the Viking warlord Hearston over in Benfleet. It's a quick victory, the defenders are killed and the families are enslaved. Vikings 3, London 2. A year later, Hayston seems up for a revenge attack, but at the last moment, he avoids London and sails right past the place, focusing his raids elsewhere. That we're going to count as a psychological victory. Vikings 3, London 3. But just when you think the comeback is on, the Londoners in 895 attacked a newly constructed Viking fortress up in Hartford, and there they're decimated. Serious defeat, and it's Vikings 4, London 3. Luckily for London, King Alfred turns up to save the day, and the city helps blockade Hartford. the Vikings end up fleeing, and London goes on to destroy the abandoned town. Vikings 4, London 4. After that flurry of activity, we take a short break, but pick up again in chapter 23 and the year 992. London is heavily involved in leading a fleet of ships to ambush a Viking raiding force, but the Ilderman of Hampshire flees before the fight even starts, and the depleted forces of London and Northumbria end up seeing one of their commanders killed in a naval battle, so that's a victory for the Vikings. Vikings 5, London 4. Just two years later in 994, as we described in Chapter 24, along comes the massive Danish army of King Sven Forkbeard, who just sails straight up the Thames and straight at London. There is a huge battle but London simply kicks the Danish king's ass. Vikings 5, London 5. In the year 999, when a fleet based in London then tries to ambush another bunch of Vikings in Kent, the noble commanders of that force used violence to keep the ships moored up and prevented Londoners from attacking. The Vikings won and escaped, and we're designating that as a Viking victory, and so it's now Viking 6, London 5. And then, finally, in the winter of 1009, as we covered back in chapter twenty seven, the Yoms Vikings, led by Thorkell the Tall, engaged in a six week long river campaign against the city. But London utterly defeated them, leaving this current score as Viking six, London six. And so we come to ten thirteen. Sven Forkbeard of Denmark is turning up with his army, making a beeline for London. The city is currently hosting King Æthelred, along with the mercenary viking Thorkild the Tall, and probably Olaf Haraldsson. And the residents of London are spoiling for a fight. There's everything to play for. Game on! (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Welcome to chapter 32 of the story of London. The fall and rise of King Æthelred. We begin with straight facts. The regime of King Aetherod of England is seemingly on its last legs. After invading the north of England, Sven Forkbeer's Danish army has intimidated everyone before him. He has not had to engage in a single fight. The English nobility, starting up in the Danelaw, has seemingly all just surrendered to him. As we said, the King of England, and we must assume his. Some of his heirs, and those people still loyal to him, along with his Viking mercenaries, had all joined forces together in London for what appeared to be a final stand. The Danish forces, supplemented now by English levies, are over in the heart of Wessex, where they have just accepted the surrender of the nobility over there. Sven now travels east, towards the city. But he knows London... As we covered in chapter 24, Forkbeard had attacked London previously, and lost, and more than that. I think that loss wasn't just something he accepted as a matter-of-fact thing. I think it bothered him. Think about it. This was the third time Forkbeard had invaded England. The first time, London hurts his force, and he has to retreat. The second time, He avoids London entirely, and now this time, his invasion with the intent to conquer, well, so far he had avoided London, but given his enemy had now placed himself there, it is only now he decides to attack, only seemingly forced to, after taking almost everywhere else. And I think his defeat by the Londoners played in his mind even more. Now, I have no evidence for this, but this speculation comes from the fact but you just look at the sheer differences between the two attacks back in 994 Sven had attacked by ship he had sailed a fleet of 94 ships up the river Thames but this force had then been bottlenecked and negated by London Bridge As we discussed heavily in Chapter 24, his men had seemingly and most probably attacked the bridge and tried to burn it. But that the defenders had inflicted vicious losses upon them, forcing them to retreat. And even the attack wasn't on the bridge, but the most easterly part of London. And his attempt to set fire to something was his attempt to burn Allgate. Attacking from the west would have seen him forced to focus on that one gate with the defenders on the walls able to pick off his men as they made their way towards it. Such a decisive defeat, I honestly believe, seems to have stuck in the King's mind, because this attack, 20 years later, he did the total opposite from the first one. This would be a land-based attack, a siege, not a raid. And this would come from the East, not the West. He was intending to avoid the Dam Bridge altogether, ...and attack the city itself. So, yeah, maybe me saying that defeat at the hands of London... ...20 years previously had stuck in Forkbeer's mind... ...is pure dramatic license on my part. But, you know, if it looks like a duck... ...and quacks like a duck... Sven's army is very different this time. This is not a body of Viking raiders... ...freshly arrived on their ships... They had marched all over England by this stage and they'd been joined by auxiliary troops from the five boroughs and the Danelaw. They had cavalry. Sven had no doubt just picked up some hostages from Wessex and may well have had part of the fjord from there with him. And he clearly had time to think about this attack. I honestly believe this time he would have taken something for attacking the town. Um, Siege ladders, for example, or more than that, huge slabs of wood designed to ram the gates. We see this forethought and planning go into simply how he moved towards London. Sven, don't forget, was over in the heartland of Wessex, which would have placed him to the south of the River Thames. That meant he couldn't attack London, only Southwark, if he stayed on the south bank, and the land around that is marshy and not conducive to a large-scale operation, Thus, Forkbeard has to cross the Thames to get to the north side. But he's carrying equipment, probably, and more than that. If they're aiming at London, then this means they're aiming at a town we know has 45 ships worth of Vikings based there, plus any additional London fleet. I think he was worried about crossing the river in any of the regular places where his force could potentially be intercepted by those ships. I think he tried to ford the river somewhere unusual, unexpected, as to get his men over and prevent the fleet of London intercepting him. And why do I say that? Well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, Thence went they eastward to London, and many of the party sunk in the Thames, because they kept not to any bridge, unquote. So... That sounds like he tried to be clever but was caught out. Whatever the exact circumstances, it does appear the crossing was a bit of a mess and led to several men drowning, I think. Maybe equipment was washed away. The words, sunk in the Thames, suggest maybe he was using boats. But the, because they would not keep to any bridge, just gives me the impression they were maybe crossing the river where it was unusual to cross Maybe there was marsh or a mud, something heavy was dashed within it. Still, be that as it may, eventually Sven Forkbeard was able to gather up his forces on the north side of the river and march direct for London. Here they would have probably marched on the road that ran towards London, the one we would today call the A4, just north of the river. This road would have taken them past Brigentford, and the hamlet of Acton to the north. Forkbeard and his army would have then had to cross the river Westbourne at the ford, halfway between the hamlet of Paddington, or Paddington, to their north, and Snitsbridge or Knightsbridge, to their south. Marching westward they then crossed the river Walbrook, between Teoburnham and Tottenham Hill. And finally, they came upon the community known as Fleta, the buildings to the east and west of the River Fleet, just to the north of St. Bride's Church, and just south of Hullaburna, the stream in the hollow, today's High Holborn. There before them would have stood the city walls, and personally speaking, based on the geography, they would have probably, in my opinion, assembled to the northwest of the city. In the space, just the other side of Aldersgate. But, please be aware, we do not know for sure. Amassing there, for me, would have allowed him to assemble his forces and bring up the things he had to storm the city. And it gave him the option that he could choose which gate to attack, either Newgate, Aldersgate, or Cripplegate, were all within this forces remit. And anything heavy to smash those gates or help his forces take the walls could be spread out and used across the entire eastern edge of the city. for behind those walls was the English king and his Viking mercenaries and the fjord of the London Sin. They were ready for them. Was there a parley? We have no record of it. But the account seemed to hint at it. It says London would, quote, not submit, unquote, which possibly suggests there was an ultimatum given. Maybe there was. Beyond that, the Anglo Saxon Chronicle's entry is brief but revealing. Quote When he came to the city, the population would not submit, but held their ground in full fight against him because therein was King Aethelred and Thurkill with him. Unquote. The term full fight suggests a genuine attempt to storm the city, but that once again London wins. The mention of both Æthelred and Thorkill at all suggests both men were witness to, or part, of the fight. Thorkill after all, was a Jomsviking, and chances are he would have been commanding his men, as the impression we have is that he's kind of a hands-on leader. Æthelred here is showing unusual boldness. As the historian Brandon Bennon actually comments about this moment, quote, if Æthelred could be accused of avoiding direct military conflict in the preceding years, his defence of London was a prominent exception. Fleeing was an option, especially with Thorpe's ships at his disposal. Ethelred chose to stay and fight, and he succeeded, at least for the time being. Unquote. So I imagine that for the first time, an actual king of England was directing the operations during the defence of the city. But whatever his role was, London won. And that technically makes the score Viking six, London seven, and for the first time in over two centuries, London has the lead. Away from that city scale, what can we say for sure? Well we know that the attack had been on the north side of London, and that having been defeated, Sven Forkbeard retreated north westwards. How can we say that? Because the Anglo Saxon Chronicle tells us he went, quote, thence to Wallingford, and so over the Thames, unquote. And having crossed the river, Sven proceeded, quote, westward to Bath, where he abode with his army, unquote. Here the Danish king licked his wounds, but that retreat wasn't just because he'd lost. Sven was always on the offensive in one way or the other. His move westward allowed him to focus his attention on the one region that still resisted him aside from London and possibly Kent, the West Country. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, Thither came Elderman Ethelmar and all the western thanes with him, and all submitted to Sven and gave hostages, unquote. And what did Sven do after that? Quote, When he had thus settled all, then went he northward, to his ships, and all the population fully received him, and considered him full king, unquote. Basically, the entire nation had surrendered to King Forkbeard, apart from London, and so secure was he in this, that he returned to Gainsborough and his fleet. The regime of King Ethelred collapsed. What? then follows in London, is a little bit obscure, and the exact sequence of events we have to place together carefully. But as far as we can tell, things unraveled over the next few weeks and months, and the reign of the longest ruling of the Anglo-Saxon kings ended, not with a bang, but with a rather pathetic whimper. The regime collapse appears to have been an inglorious affair. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, and when this nation could neither resist in the south nor in the north, King Athelred abode some while with the fleet that lay in the Thames, unquote. Which suggests that he ended up with Thorkil and Olaf and the Vikings, And the words, the fleet that lay in the Thames, suggest they were based in or near London, perhaps in Thorkill's old base over in Greenwich. In fact, I actually support this idea the liarsmen of England, the men of the fleet, which probably included the ships London had used all along, seems to have become all that remained of Ethelred's kingdom. It was becoming every man for himself. The soon-to-be-very-important-to-future-politics-of-England, Queen Emma of Normandy, his wife, fled, the chronicle telling us that, the lady went afterwards over the sea to her brother Richard, accompanied by Elsie, the abbot of Peterborough, unquote. So Queen Eva went to Normandy and her brother Duke Richard. And then quote, the king sent Bishop Ilphun with the Etherlings, Edward and Alfred, oversee that he might instruct them. Unquote. Bishop Ilphun was the Bishop of London, which suggests that while he wasn't based in the town himself, the town was still nominally loyal to him. Bishop Elfen is taking the two sons of the king over to join their mother, Queen Emma, but we need to highlight here, as it will become bloody important later on, exactly who he is taking. Edward and Alfred are the two sons of King Æthelred and Queen Emma of Normandy. The other sons of King Æthelred and Queen Elfgifu, his first wife, are alive and well, And elsewhere right now Then went the king from the fleet about midwinter to the Isle of Wight, and there he abode for the season, after which he went over the sea to Richard, unquote. Keep in mind the the logistics of this. The king would have needed at least one ship for him to be based on, and chances are at least one or two others at least to provide an escort. So It looks like the king maybe had left his large fleet on the Thames, but obviously retained some ships and their crews to work for him. As the cold winter of 1013 stretched into the start of the year 1014, Christmas ended and the king of England was gone, exiled. We know that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says this about London's relationship with King Sven. Quote, "the population of london also after this submitted to him and gave hostages because they dreaded what he would do to them" Unquote. but the exact timing is uncertain and above all we must emphasize this also after this quote suggests it was after the regime collapsed This being said, some say London's surrender is what forced Ethelred to flee to the ships. Again, I emphasise the sequence is uncertain. Still, surrendering to Forkbeard showed remarkable self-preservation on behalf of London. The city had defied and defeated this Danish king twice. I do not think they fancied their chances a third time. Oh... And technically speaking, that makes the score Viking 7, London 7. Sven Forkbeard was now King of England, and the Anglo Saxon Chronicle says, Then bade Sven full tribute and forage for his army during the winter. So his immediate concerns were political and logistical. He was a lord of all he surveyed because of his Danish army. And they needed pay and provisions. But it's also worth noting that the Anglo-Saxon chronicle includes this little detail, quote, And Thorkil bid the same for the army that lay at Greenwich, unquote. With the king gone, Thorkil and the Jomsvikings seem to be demanding money, possibly of London, possibly not to attack it. And again, this may have been done before Athelred left. Regardless, Thorkil and Co. appeared to be on the losing side of a war against the Danish king. Their future seemed uncertain. But I believe the Vikings, maybe including Thorkil at all, or maybe under another commander, possibly Olaf Haraldsson, was about to play one final role still. The year 1014 begun. Quote, This year, King Sven... Ended his days at Candlemas, Yep, he died. His reign is generally reckoned to be the shortest reign of any king of England, and is only beaten in shortness by Lady Jane Grey some centuries later. The king was dead. Long live the king. What happens now? Well, the sudden death of Sven Forkbeard, in his rather humble abode in Gainsborough, which at least one Scandinavian source says was incredibly modest, given his status. I mean, this man was the king of two separate nations when he died. That moment threw everything into confusion. And now, again, we have to continue to reconstruct events based on the sources. One of the versions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle includes a really interesting line about this time that involved London. See, it says that on the feast day of St. Juliana, which is February 16th, 1014, a man called Elfwig was appointed as the Bishop of London in a ceremony that took place in York. This suggests that A, the previous bishop, who we last saw sailing off to Normandy to escort the sons of King Aethelred and Queen Emma, had died there or died soon after, word had gotten back and a new bishop was being appointed for the See of London. But it also tells us something else. The location is actually more important than the act. Sven Forkbeard had been based in Gainsborough. This was where his fleet was laid up, where his treasury had been based. This is where he had left his young son Canute to hold things down when he'd gone out to take on the rest of the country. And this is where he was when he died. But as the historian Jonathan Wilcox observed, there is evidence to suggest that Forkbeard had intended to have himself crowned as king in York Minster, and that York was to be his primary royal city. Which brings us back to the elevation of the new Bishop of London, Elfwig. His appointment was, as observed by another historian, Timothy Bolton, one that could only be made at a national assembly, a Witan, or Witanegmot to give it its full name, literally the meeting of the wise. As Bolton points out, If Sven died on February 3rd, holding a witan to, say, elect a new bishop of London a mere 13 days later is hardly any time to gather the great and the good to make such an appointment, suggesting that Sven summoned the witan before that date. The suggestion is they were summoned to York because this is where they would then confirm their new king, and again where he would probably be crowned king. The choice of York is extraordinary. No Witan had ever been held in York before. Northern locations had not been used to host Witan since the ninth century, and the furthest north the Whitans had ever come had been Tamworth and Nottingham. Indeed even after this date, there is only one northern Witan ever held, and that's in 1045 in Lincoln. No, Sven Forkbeard summoned the Witan to York because this is how he saw his rule. His kingdom's centre of gravity would be in the north. Further proof is found in the fact that around now, just before he died, Sven married his son Canute to a woman called Ilf Gifu of Northamptonshire, which gave his son dynastic links to the major ruling families of the Midlands and Northern England. This was a Mercian alliance these Danish invaders were making. But this all was thrown out when the king died. Now, we know the great and the good clearly did gather in York and clearly were around to elevate Elfwig as Bishop of London. But while Canute had dynastic ties to the north now, all those magnets and powers from the south of England, well now they had food for thought. Sven's focus on the north, his clearly unprecedented desire to flip royal power in the kingdom away from Wessex and towards Northumbria and Mercia, clearly did not sit well with them. So while the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that down in Gainsborough, quote, the fleet all chose Canute for king, unquote, meaning the young prince had the support of his army, the great and the good of England basically just left York and work had already begun to maybe get Ethelred back. It is said that the Archbishop of York Wulfstan, the former Wolf Bishop of London, reworked one of his barnstorming sermons. He delivered the sermon in 1014, wherein he lambasts the English peoples for their sins. He accused the nation of having killed one king, the previous king, Edward the Martyr, and driving out his brother, Ethelred. He reminded them of the monk Gildas' account, of how the ancient Britons had so angered the Almighty, he had allowed the Angles and the Saxons take the land. The nation, according to Wolfston, had turned against their rightful king. He will punish them unless they change course, thundered the wolf bishop. We should now not perhaps be surprised then, when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, "Whereupon advised all the councillors of England, clergy and laity, that they should send after King Ethelred by general agreement." Unquote. Now this is kind of big, and as we will discuss in a future episode, there were several possible candidates they could have chosen. Somewhere in England were Ethelred's two oldest boys. Ethelstan and Edmund. But the great and the good decided to forego them, and word was sent to Normandy. The king was invited back. With conditions, of course. Mostly that, quote, he would govern them better than he did before, unquote. Which is a hell of a slap to the face. That march... King Ethelred sent his son Etheling Edward, the young, not-quite-a-teenager offspring of him and Emma, along with others to negotiate the fast return of the king. Now, using young Edward did have major political ramifications, but we'll cover that at another time. All we need to focus upon is that negotiations did indeed seem to go fast the young Aetheling, informing the nobility of his father's intentions. Apparently, Aethelred quote, saying that he would be their faithful lord, would better each of those things they disliked, and that each of the things should be forgiven, which had either been done or said against him, unquote. A general amnesty would be enough for everyone to accept his return except London, who would not need one as had held out the longest. The Witan agreed and, quote, declared every Danish king outlawed from England forever, unquote. Edward got the deal his father wanted and returned to Normandy, and by Lent, in the year 1014, Ethelred was back in England, no doubt much to the joy of the residents of London and probably carried by ships that had originally set off from London only months previously. Now what was Knut doing this whole time? Well he stayed in the north. And this kind of makes sense. This is where his support seemed strongest. It was here that he had his army anyway. And remember, Knut was holding on to a bunch of hostages that had been given to his father by every major lord and land in England. London had given him hostages. All to vouchsafe their loyalty. Canute could well be fine with the nation taking his time, thinking this would be enough to secure the submission of the nation. Or maybe he wasn't fine at all. We know he struck a deal with the inhabitants of nearby Lincolnshire, back then the region of England known as Lindsay. Quote, It was agreed between him and the people of Lindsay that they should supply him with horses and afterwards go out all together and plunder unquote. Now call me old fashioned but that sure seems that Canute is getting ready for a fight. Him and the men of Lindsay supplementing his Danish army. It was going to be him against the now aging King Æthelred. But that fight never came about. Æthelred did not return alone. I believed he arrived with the Oms Vikings and that he and Thorkild at all, or maybe some other leader, were about to complete their agreements. Where do I get this idea from? Simple. The speed at which Ethelred acted. It's a kind of boldness and alacrity we have never really seen from Ethelred unless he was working with Viking mercenaries, such as the invasions of Scotland, the Isle of Man, and Normandy a few years previously. And also, it's down to just pure logistics. If Athelred wanted to attack Canute, he had a choice. Gather up a fjord, assemble the fjord, march north past, say, Cambridge and Peterborough, give Canute ample time to marshal his forces also. Or, he could have just marched north with his Viking mercenaries. But that would have been a newly arrived infantry force, and Canute had cavalry, don't forget. They would have been butchered if they attacked it. But neither of those things happened. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, King Athelred, with his full force, came to Lindsay before they were ready, unquote. This suggests a sudden surprise attack. One that tells me it was done by boat. The fleet was used. And doing this allowed the King and the Yoms Vikings just sail around East Anglia and fall upon Lindsay today's Lincolnshire furiously and with total surprise. The description of the attack sounds like this kind of raid, the kind of raid the Jomsvikings specialised in doing. Quote, And they plundered and burnt and slew all the men that they could reach, unquote. In fact, the original language heavily infers that women and children were also included. This was a horrific, sudden attack out of nowhere. And it had another effect. Just the other side of Lindsay, was where Canute and his men were based in the town of Gainsborough. And while the attack by Aetherod's forces had utterly obliterated Canute's auxiliary forces based there, it also exposed a crucial weakness. Gainsborough was where Canute and his men and his ships were based. Remember, this army of Canute is referred to as a fleet at the sources of the time. This is a naval war. Not a land war. The Yoms Vikings and a fleet were just a few miles to the east, but that wasn't what was worrying them. They weren't bothered by the smoke raising from, from Lindsay. The worry was that after this raid, if the Yoms Vikings and Ethelred sailed north just a little, they would trap Canute and his fleet. See, for a Viking, the route to Gainsborough was simple. You took the North Sea to the River Humber. You sailed west along the Humber until it meets the River Trent. And then you just sail south along the River Trent. And hey presto, you're in Gainsborough. If Ethelred's fleet blockaded the Humber, or even the Trent, Canute and his fleet were trapped with no way out. His army was ferocious, but it could not defend against the united England. The invasion by his father only a year before had been intended to be large enough to take on Northumbria only, and then with Utrecht's surrender had been supplemented and had grown larger. Those auxiliary forces that had swore loyalty to Sven were now Canute's enemies. Canute had to get his men out of Gainsborough before they were bottlenecked by the Yom's Vikings. And so he did the only thing he could do. He fled. Apparently, he fled so quickly that he even left the body of his father behind, which his wife, Elfgifu had to transport over to Denmark at a later date, according to at least one Scandinavian source. Canute had lost this war before he could even begin. But he did manage to get to the sea. And then, quote, proceeded southwards until he came to Sandwich. There he landed the hostages that were given to his father and cut off their hands and ears and their noses, unquote. With this final act of savage, petulant cruelty, Canute sailed off towards Denmark. After what? appears to have been two years of warfare and chaos, of regime change and restoration, of invasion and liberation. England could finally catch its breath. London especially could catch its breath. But there is a really interesting little footnote. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle adds very specifically at this point Quote, besides all these evils, the king ordered a tribute to the army that lay of Greenwich of £21,000. That, for me, sounds like a final payoff. The Yomsvikings had completed their final contract for their employer, the King of England, and they were ending a very interesting two years' worth of employment by the English. The clue to that is the phrase, the army that lay at Greenwich, which we know is where the Oms Vikings had traditionally been based. And the sum, £21,000, even if not precisely correct, it does suggest a huge payoff for people who had just restored the throne. We do not know for sure. But clearly it would be a mighty payment to the Vikings who had helped defend London and then scourge Lincolnshire. King Athelred was now King of England again. Canute had fled across the sea and these Vikings had clearly helped him. Job well done. Pay them off. Let them go. And so London sat and took a breath. The king was restored. All seemed well, and then disaster struck. On September 28th that year, a natural disaster, the like of which no one had ever seen before, struck Britain. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, this year, on the eve of St. Michael's Day, came the great sea flood, which spread wide over this land, and ran so far as it never did before, overwhelming many towns and innumerable multitude of people another contemporary writer at the time, William Malsbury described what happened in the following terms a tidal wave of the sort of which the Greeks called Eripus grew to an astonishing size such as the memory of men cannot parallel so as to submerge villages many miles inland and overwhelm and drowned their inhabitants, unquote. Something huge happened, and the contemporary sources do not do it justice. Like an ominous sign from God himself, his judgment seems to have been placed upon the land. And there's where we're going to end this chapter, and we'll return next week for chapter 33 in the story of London. Thanks for listening. There will be a copy of the script with added pictures, maps and things to go along with it up in the next few days over on the website Imja. I really hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoy writing these episodes right now. I will admit the story of London draws me in every chapter. The original plan I wanted to do was to cover about six years of history in this chapter. But I got as far as the restoration of Aetherod as king and then came that disaster and, well, that was it. But I will go on more about that disaster in the next part, because there's a lot more to it. Anyway, if you like this podcast and wish to support it, please feel free to give it a five-star review or something to appease the algorithm gods. And thank you to everybody who has so far. And as you may have noticed, we I don't run adverts or anything like that here. If you wish to support the podcast please feel free to make a contribution at uh, my Buy Me A Coffee page. And links to that will be on the page that has all the scripts. Anyway, enough. You know I prefer to talk about London than myself. We return next week with Chapter 33. See you then.